Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this uh, panel discussion uh, this evening. My name is uh, Kevin Featherstone. I'm a professor in the European Institute here at the school. Uh, I believe that there are a number of alumni with us this evening from the 1895 Society, so a special welcome to you all, and we look forward to the opportunity of uh, talking to you later. But welcome to everyone for an event which is uh, part of the LSE's programme on Brexit, a programme organised by the European Institute at the school and also the School of Public Policy here at the LSE as well. Now, as you can probably imagine, when we originally planned tonight's event many, many months ago, we thought we were going to be on the eve of a certain finality, as it were. Uh, instead... Of course, we have uh, very dramatic political events, much uncertainty, and the complete opposites of the linear path that uh, some had uh, expected. Indeed, of course, uh, some now talk about uh, Brexit being so much fun, it will continue on and on and on. Indeed, some now talk about Brexiternity. Uh, <laughs> We have to be careful what we wish for, uh, perhaps. Certainly, it's a critical stage in the Brexit uh, process. In fact, it's the most critical stage since the previous critical stage that we've had uh, on Brexit. But, of course, uh, we now know that members of Parliament tomorrow uh, will vote on the withdrawal agreement, uh, part of the Theresa May uh, deal, uh, for the third time. That could be a crucial uh, stage. We also expect that there may be further so-called indicative votes uh, on Monday. Uh, so a sequence of days in which uh, the Brexit outcome uh, could indeed be uh, determined. But the votes are likely to clarify when and how the UK might leave the European Union, but probably not clarify the direction, the destination that we are uh, about to embark upon. That is the eventual long-term outcome of Brexit for the future relationship between the UK and the European uh, Union. So, of course, uh, in these critical days... Uh, people reflect on what's going on in the system, uh, what's going on in British politics. Uh, like many of my colleagues, uh, I talk about Brexit to uh, other audiences uh, in the rest of Europe. I think the word incredulity comes to mind in terms of uh, their response to what's going on in the UK. I think a more uh, neutral observer might certainly accept that it is uh, something of a, a system malfunction. Uh, some would say an omnishambles, uh, perhaps. We've got a number of elements here. The government set itself perhaps an impossible task in terms of negotiating the particular deal consistent with its red lines. Political parties have split uh, Parliament has uh, attempted to seize control of the agenda. Uh, civil servants, Whitehall, have been uh, attacked for being the enemies of the people's will. Uh, 
sidelined from the process to some degree. And for their part, uh, British people have seemed to be uncertain, angry, and uh, fearful as to what may happen. So in this drama, we've learned some new things, and we've recognized things that we still don't know. Uh, We've learned about the rights and limits of parliamentary uh, authority. Indeed, I think uh, the speaker, John Burkow, has become something of an international celebrity, uh, something which he could not reasonably have expected at the earlier stage of his life. Uh, We've also uh, learned more about the consequences of the Irish backstop guarantee. And perhaps, if we followed it closely... We've also learned more about the differences between different uh, Brexit models, the Norwegian model, the Canadian model, the Swiss model, uh, as to the possible relationship that the UK might have with the European Union uh, going forward. By contrast, perhaps, other areas are still to be explored and uh, explained. Uh, The effects of Brexit, still highly contentious, Uh, How far can we attribute uh, the effects to the Brexit cause if we look at the uh, relocation of um, activity by major car firms or the loss and transfer of jobs from the City of London? uh, Different interpretations are put forward. So it's an appropriate time, even on the basis that tomorrow is not Brexit Day. It's still an appropriate time for us to pause, to reflect... Uh, to discuss what is going on and the implications of the Brexit process uh, so far. So our purpose tonight is not to rehearse the debates for or against Brexit. We're here to try to explain, explore the implications of the Brexit process in the best LSE tradition of trying to understand the causes of things. And our speakers are well-placed to uh, guide us in this uh, journey. Uh, First of all, let me introduce Professor Sir Charles Bean, who is a professor of economics here at the LSE, a member of the Budget Responsibility Committee at the Office for Budget Responsibility. He served as Deputy Governor for Monetary Policy at the Bank of England. Uh, He served also as the President of the Royal Economic Society, and was knighted in 2014 for his services to monetary policy and central banking. Charles will be uh, guiding us through some of the economic issues that have arisen in the Brexit uh, debate. We also have uh, Jill Rutter, who is Programme Director for Brexit at the Institute for Government, and of course she's co-authored a number of uh, the Institute reports on the implications of Brexit to both Whitehall and Westminster. I understand that tomorrow the Institute for Government will be publishing a new report precisely on the implications, the consequences of Brexit on uh, the internal workings of uh, Whitehall administration. Finally, last but not least, but very welcome to have joined us at such a timely point in the proceedings, uh, Professor Catherine Bernard is Professor in European Union Law and Employment Law at the University of Cambridge. Uh, Currently, Catherine is a Senior (coughs) Fellow in the ESRC's UK and the Changing Europe Project 
uh, which looks at all aspects of Brexit in its various uh, manifestations. Uh, Catherine, I'm sure, is known to many of us in terms of her uh, uh, contributions to the, to the debates on the legal implications, constitutional implications uh, of Brexit. I've invited each speaker to open up the proceedings with uh, a contribution of perhaps uh, 10 minutes to set us uh, going. Uh, I will then follow with questions uh, as chair, and I will maximize the time for questions, contributions from you, uh, the audience. Let me say that uh, tonight's event has been webcast live, and it will also be available as a podcast after uh, tonight's on the uh, web pages of the European uh, Institute. If you're so minded, and we hope you are, you can uh, contribute your comments on Twitter, uh, and there is the hashtag LSEBrexit, uh, so we look forward to reading those comments as we uh, proceed. Uh, but um, let's get underway. We have much to discuss, and I'm sure you'll have plenty of questions. Uh, I'm going to invite Catherine Bernard to uh, speak to us first. I'm not quite sure, Catherine, whether you're speaking from here or there. From speaking here. Can you please join me in welcoming our panel this evening? Well, thank you very much indeed for um, inviting me here this evening on what was going to be an auspicious evening. We would have um, left, uh, it would have been the last night that we were members of the EU. Um, what I'm going to talk a bit about is um, the options that have been, the options that still are, and a bit about some of the issues about the uh, uh, withdrawal agreement and why it's causing so much trouble. And I'm going to look at it largely from a legal perspective, and I'll leave Jill to look at it from a more political perspective. Now, just cast your mind back about a fortnight, and actually um, these were the various options that were um, on the table, and they still are relevant today. So prior to the 21st of March, which was the European Council meeting last week, we were essentially looking at four options, and all of them pointed to um, an extension of Article 50. The first one was a no-deal Brexit tomorrow or um, on now the 12th of April. Now, what you hear from a number of people, particularly the Brexiteurs, that this will be fine, we can fall back on WTO terms. This is one of the many abuses of language that have occurred in the course of this process. WTO terms does not mean, is not the panacea to all problems. Quite the contrary. The WTO, uh, not too bad in respect of goods, pretty useless in respect of services, and remember 70% of our economy is in fact based on services. Furthermore, there is no body like the European Commission that come, come in and enforce the rules under uh, the WTO terms. And so it is very odd that those same people who talk a lot about WTO terms are very much in favour of having a free trade agreement with the US if WTO was so marvellous, why would you want a free trade agreement? And indeed, no major trading nation trades solely on WTO terms. The US, which doesn't have a trade deal with um, the EU, nevertheless has 100 side agreements that it works 
uses to operate and make sure that trade operates. So there is a huge fallacy about WTO terms. Now, there was always going to need to be an extension because um, there's a vast phalanx of uh, secondary legislation that needed to be passed, 600 SIs, statutory instruments. Now, all of them have now been assembled, an amazing tribute to the civil service. They've produced over 10,000 pages of legislation in the last year to 18 months. But there are some big bills that have not been passed, in particular on trade, on agriculture and on immigration. We are not legally ready for a no-deal Brexit. And so that's why there was always a thought that Theresa May's deal would pass. That's the Article 50 withdrawal agreement. But as you know, there is an issue over the backstop, which I'll return to in a moment. Then there has been a significant push augmented by the march at the weekend for a people's vote. But just remember, a people's vote will also require legislation. And as we know, the House is so divided, it's very difficult to get legislation through the House. And um, then the process will take at a minimum 22 weeks. The government says a year, but a minimum 22 weeks and lots of difficult questions to answer. What would the franchise be? Would it be the same as for last time? What would the question be? A two-pronged question or a three-pronged question? None of this has been sorted out. And what would the question actually say? <coughs> so um, that means... If there is going to be a, a people's vote, there would need to be a significant extension. And that significant extension will take us over the period of the European Parliament elections. And the other p a potential outcome is a general election. Might I have a glass of water? Yes, could we pass them? Um, and a general election, of course, will also take time and will also uh, require an extension of Article 50. Thank you. So all the roads were leading to an extension whichever route you look down. And that's exactly what happened last week at the European Council. At the European Council, the, the 27 heads of state meeting in Brussels actually reached a rather wise um, decision. They didn't blackmail in the way that Donald Tusk appeared to be doing, but what they did was to offer two dates. And the two dates were... If there's going to be a meaningful vote, the meaningful vote will either produce a yes or no outcome. If there's a vote in favour tomorrow, then um, the, uh, there will be a delay in the process, the delay in Brexit day to the 22nd of May. Why? Because we need to get the WAB through Parliament. And the WAB is the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill. So the meaningful vote is only stage one. Stage two is actually turning the content of that withdrawal agreement into domestic law through the WAB. Now, what happens if tomorrow the WAB is not approved? More to the point, there's even no meaningful vote which is approved. The WAB certainly won't be. Therefore, we've got until the 12th of April. And by the 12th of April, we've got to tell the EU what we're going to do. And there are a number of outcomes, some of which I've already rehearsed to you. One possibility is no deal Brexit, um, and so we crash out without a deal. As we know, there's no parliamentary majority for that, but that doesn't really matter because, of course, it's not for us to decide. It's for the EU to give a further extension. The only thing that we can decide unilaterally is um, to revoke Article 50. 
We can decide to revoke Article 50, and I'll come back to the criteria in a moment, but otherwise there will have to be um, a general election or, a, political, uh, or um, a second referendum, both of which, of course, will require a longer extension and thus um, participation in the European Parliament elections. There's also the possibility of amending the political declaration, PD. Now, the political declaration is about the future. What sort of relationship are we going to have going forward? Now, as far as the future is concerned, that's essentially what the indicative votes yesterday were about, looking at what sort of trading relationship we might have, staying in the customs union or a customs union, or staying in the customs union and single market, something like Norway. But in fact, those indicative votes, while useful and indeed indicative, although not indicative of a great deal as we now know, nevertheless, those indicative votes were really about looking at what that future relationship must be. Now, there's a legal problem that's become apparent this afternoon. What we've discovered is that in order to try and get round John Burko's ruling last week, that the government cannot insist that the same um, documents be put before Parliament time and time again until Parliament votes the right way, what they're going to do is to split the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration and to vote tomorrow on the withdrawal agreement. That's the divorce. That's the Article 50 text. That's what goes by the name of Theresa May's deal. That's what's going to be voted on tomorrow. Political declaration kept to one side. Voting on the withdrawal agreement um, is fine as far as the EU is concerned. All the EU asked last week was that we vote on the withdrawal agreement this week. And remember, tomorrow is the last day of this week. That's what the language of the European Council conclusion said. But under domestic law, under the EU Withdrawal Act, under domestic law... Section 13 requires a vote not just on the divorce, on the Article 50 text, but also on the political declaration. And so there is a legal issue at domestic level about separating the two um, from one another. But the political declaration is about the future. But remember, it's only political, and therefore, because it's only political, it's not legally binding. If there's a general election which changes government and they want to have, go off in a different direction, the political declaration will not be binding on that future government. So to summarise where we're at, you might be thinking, oh my God, I've lost the will to live already. The fact <laughs> is, these are the options that are on the table. They haven't changed very much at all, but what has changed is the timeline, and what's changed is the time pressure. So the withdrawal agreement doesn't go through. Um, as you've seen, if it doesn't go through, you've got those... Um, the real risk is that there will be a hard Brexit on the 12th of April, and that is still the default position. If the withdrawal agreement does go through tomorrow, then you've still got to get the WAB, the withdrawal and implementation period. One point to note, one point that's commonly misunderstood, the if we go through the withdrawal agreement and the WAB gets passed, the Withdrawal Implementation Bill, that will take us into a period of transition. That transition period where essentially we're in a status quo state, although we are not participating in the EU institutions, in that status quo period, that transition period, it will last until December 2020 or 
possibly to December 2022. But contrary to what you hear from a number of politicians, that transition period will only be engaged once we've agreed the withdrawal agreement. It will not happen if we crash out with no deal. It's a common, common misconception. What about revoking Article 50? Yes, you can do it. We had a decision of the Court of Justice before Christmas that said, yes, you can do it, provided the following conditions are laid down. It's done in an unequivocal and unconditional way. It's done in accordance with the constitutional requirements of the member state, which would require, wait for it, another act of parliament to revoke the EU um, a Notification Act, which was the Gina Miller prompted legislation which triggered um, Article 50 following a democratic process. The Advocate General, who gave an advisory opinion in that case, the Advocate General said, and furthermore, you've got to do it in good faith. You can't revoke Article 50 instrumentally to buy yourself a bit more time only to re-trigger Article 50 um, a short while afterwards. So those are the options which still brings us back to Theresa May's deal, the withdrawal agreement. Now, as you know, it's 600 pages long, 300 of which are devoted to the backstop, 300 of which are also devoted to other things which have not been discussed at all in public. All of the discussions have been about the backstop. Now, there are a lot of things that will get Brexiteurs um, will really cause them a lot of concern, including Article 4 of the Withdrawal Agreement, which says that the Withdrawal Agreement will take precedence over conflicting UK law and will be directly effective, the principles of direct effect and supremacy, the very things that the Brexiteurs thought they had turned off in the um, EU Withdrawal Act last summer, but they are back there in the Withdrawal Agreement. But what you've heard so much about is about the backstop. And the backstop is, um, is a cause for considerable concern, by um, the, particularly by the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. Essentially, it operates like a swimming pool. And this is, this is how it works, to put it very simply, that in the shallow end, Great Britain stays in the customs union. In the deep end, Northern Ireland stays in the customs union and the single market for goods. And the reason why you've got that is to make sure there's no hard border in Northern Ireland. And you can't just have a customs union membership because the real concern is doing regulatory checks, to use the jargon, non-tariff barriers, which will cause physical uh, infrastructure at the frontier checking that lorries containing products, phytosanitary products, so animal-related products, are complying with EU standards when they go into the south. So you need to have both to avoid a hard border in Northern Ireland. Now, as far as the backstop is concerned, why is it of concern to the um, DUP? Well, it creates a border down the Irish Sea because goods coming from Liverpool into Larne will need to be checked in order to ensure that they comply with EU law. There's nothing in the backstop about services, which actually is very damaging for the UK economy. And if the backstop becomes the default option, therefore we will be trading on WTO terms for services, 
That's the GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services. And as I said to you at the outset, in rather simplistic language, that's very bad news for the UK. There's a further problem, and uh, uh, do I have two minutes to just highlight the further problem? And the further problem is this. It's the timetable. Now, as far as the timetable is concerned, what you see here is a very approximate timeline. So let's say we do leave on 29th of March is what all the calculations have been done on, 22nd of May if we get the withdrawal agreement through. Now let's just work it through in terms of what happens next. You then go into transition. And remember I said to you transition only applies if the withdrawal agreement is passed. You go into transition, and the transition will take you, if it is the full three-year transition, will take you to the 31st of December 2022. At that point, there is a hope that the future trading relationship will kick in. But it will only kick in if we've negotiated it. And at the moment, we do not know what we want out of the future trading relationship. In reality, negotiating trade deals takes four to five years, sometimes up to ten years. So there is a gap. There is a gap in time. Can you see that gap? That gap. If we say four years, that gap takes you from 2022, the end of 2022, to 2024, 2025. In that gap, that's where the backstop kicks in. And if the backstop kicks in, that's when all the trouble really starts because you'll have the DUP saying, look, Northern Ireland has been separated from the rest of um, Great Britain. And so there will be huge pressure for us never to enter the backstop. And the only way we can do that is to make sure that at the end of transition, the new future trading relationship deal kicks in. And the only way that we'll be able to do that is by making concessions, lots and lots of concessions, because the time is on the EU side. They can sit and wait while we make up our minds what we want out of that future trading relationship, and then they can start negotiating. Remember, they're good at it. They've been very good at it during the first phase. They'll be extremely good at it at the second phase, because that's what they do and they will put huge pressure under, on us to make more and more concessions. Meanwhile, and Jill can talk about this with much more fluency than I, the politics of betrayal and victimhood will continue in British politics for years to come because Brexiters haven't got the pure Brexit they want and Remainers will feel that they've been deeply let down by the system. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Jill, I think you're going to speak from your seat here, yes? Yeah, hi. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm not the professor on the panel. Uh, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm from the Institute for Government. I'm also very short, so I hate lecterns. So <laughs> I'm going to stay sitting down. So you probably can't see me. Um, so I'm going to ask to talk a bit about what has Brexit done to politics and government. Um, I'm not going to use slides but if you would like some very high-grade data viz on all the issues I'm about to talk about, can I recommend that at midnight, because you will be up, uh, you download from the Institute for Government website our 
publication designed to mark the day on which we leave the EU. Not quite, but we didn't need an extension. We've got out our Brexit effect, uh, how government has changed since the EU referendum. So can I recommend you go to that? And it's got some absolutely fantastic graphics in it. Not a single one by me, I have to add. So I think the interesting question, talking about government politics, is why aren't we leaving the EU tomorrow? After all, if we wind back in time two years ago, it all seemed to be going so well. The Prime Minister has set out her vision for Brexit at the party conference and then followed that up at Lancaster House and had a relatively unified uh, party and cabinet behind her. She'd been forced by Gina Miller in, I think, uh, a move that ultimately proved enormously beneficial to the Prime Minister and actually counterproductive um, for Gina Miller. But she had been forced by the Supreme Court to legislate to trigger Article 50. And that had passed with a massive majority. Remember that Labour whipped uh, in favour of triggering Article 50? Uh, the House of Lords raised two objections, one on citizens' rights guarantees and one on the need for a meaningful vote, but didn't insist when the Commons said no thanks. Uh, so that had gone down very easily. And this time two years ago, I was down uh, on March 29, 2017, on College Green, uh, where all the BBC tents are and stuff like that, explaining uh, what Article 50 triggering was. Remember, at that time, it seems a very long time ago, the Prime Minister was still Iron Lady 2. She was very well ahead in the polls, but at that stage, she was absolutely ruling out a general election. So, uh, we're clearly in a very different state now. So, let's just think a little bit about where did it all go so wrong? Um, I think it's quite interesting. There's a lot, I think, to be traced back to the Prime Minister's decision to call that election and lose her majority. But it's not absolutely clear to me that the Prime Minister actually would have been in a hugely better position if she had come back with a thumping great majority. Probably not quite as difficult as she's found herself in, but nonetheless. But I think why is, why is it sort of underlyingly so difficult to deliver Brexit? Well, the first one is that MPs feel obliged. Why did all those MPs vote to trigger Article 50? Because most of them had voted for a referendum, but most of them had voted for a referendum that they did not expect nor want to deliver the result that the people annoyingly uh, did on the 23rd of June 2016. So MPs felt obliged to go ahead and trigger Article 50, but most MPs intrinsically think Brexit is the wrong decision. Uh, that's not true of some. Some are clearly extremely committed believers and have always thought this is a massive issue of sovereignty and that the big mistake was made in the early 1970s, not in uh, 2016. But they are very much a very vociferous and active, but a minority of MPs. So MPs were always having to reconcile the verdict of the people with what they, as representatives, felt was best for the country. The second thing is the referendum delivered us a vote against. It said we didn't want to be members of the EU, but it didn't tell us what we wanted. And that, indeed, is, after all, exactly what Catherine has been setting out to you, that sort of set of options about what sort of relationship do we want with the EU after Brexit. And there's 
Every day on Twitter, you'll find people tweeting out different things that some Brexiteers said about the nature of the relationship after that. Um, in the civil service, when there's a general election, the thing the civil service does to prepare for a change of government is read the manifestos. I think politicians are surprised uh, that uh, so when they come into government, civil servants have read the manifestos much more closely than most politicians who uh, fought on them have uh, <laughs> and assume that politicians committed to every word in those manifestos. But those manifestos provide a basis for planning of what comes next. They're one reason why we change governments quite quickly and can get going quite quickly. But the referendum was different. There didn't need to be a referendum, for, uh, a manifesto for Remain, because Remain was what we were, and David Cameron had his renegotiation, which would have been triggered had we stayed. But Leave didn't produce a manifesto. And indeed, as we've seen from Dominic Cummings and others, part of the strategy was to be deliberately imprecise. Because what do you want to do if you want to win a referendum? You build a coalition of people who are supporting you for extremely different reasons. That's the way you assemble your 52%. That was compounded by the decision by David Cameron to refuse to let the civil service prepare uh, for Brexit. Uh, there would have been some preparations in the Treasury and the Bank of England, as there always are. But whereas we have set routines for preparing for a change of government, we did not have preparations for a change a radical change of government policy because governments do not want to give the hint that they are about to lose. Because remember, the government, although not the Conservative Party, was committed to remain. And that meant the sort of civil service was, uh, to an extent, blindsided. It's a very interesting question, I think, about whether civil servants should be allowed to undertake those sorts of preparations without seeking political cover for them. Mm. Because I think that is actually the thing that is difficult. And if we had been in New Zealand, the civil service could have done that, uh, which I think is quite interesting. This was then compounded by what you might describe as the clean skin approach that people who knew a lot about the EU, had spent their life dealing with EU issues, were regarded with suspicion. There was a, an intrinsic suspicion that the civil service was a bunch of Remainers, that may very well be true, given the demographics. If you are a well-educated graduate living in London, you are probably, on balance, I think, likely to be a Remainer. Um, but anyone who knew about the EU was regarded with a degree of suspicion. So if you look at the people who went to staff the top of the Department for Exiting the EU, lack of knowledge about the EU was a qualification. And that then manifested itself in a lack of understanding of EU process and approach. Interestingly, the Prime Minister came out of a department which has a very strange and different relationship with the EU to most other government departments. Most other government departments give you sort of experience of horse trading around in the EU, getting to agreements and things like that. That's not true, actually, on justice and home affairs. Theresa May was used to a situation where we'd opted out of lots of JHA provisions. The only question for her was could she persuade her party, maybe this actually isn't such a bad analogy now, to opt back in to those we liked. But it actually was not the same process. And one of the big criticisms of Theresa May was she did not get how different this process would be. There was a particular and profound misunderstanding of Ireland, the Irish border, and the attitude the EU would take to Ireland. And the fact that the EU would see it as a badge of honour 
to defend the interests of a small member state. Uh, there was a view in Whitehall, I think, that at the end of the day, the economy would always trump politics. One of the most tin-eared phrases by any government minister was David Davis, before he resigned, speaking in, I think, uh, October 2017 to Süddeutsche Zeitung Forum in Berlin, where he came out with the phrase, uh, putting politics above prosperity is never the smart choice. He was talking about the EU, not the UK. But, of course, that is exactly what everybody in the EU thinks we had just done. Anyway, so compounding all that, uh, those were all things that I think were problems from the start in 2016. Uh, I think there was a structural problem in the creation of the Department of the Exit in the EU, a lack of understanding of the right organisation thing, and the Prime Minister then compounded that big time by deciding to fight that election that she promised she wouldn't do and losing her majority and then compounded that even further by entering into what very might, well might be judged, uh, I'd leave it to Professor Ellis to judge that better than me, an unnecessary confidence and supply arrangement with the DWP. DUP. Quite interesting, with the DUP. Because actually the DUP were probably never going to bring her government down, uh, and so she possibly didn't need to do that. The moment the UK did that, it complicated the Irish issue still further and I think compromised some of its credibility as a guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. So those are some of the sort of uh, baseline things. So those are some of the reasons why I think this has proved so difficult. So how has this played out? To start with uh, the bit I know best, I'm a former civil servant, so what's it, what's it done to government? Well, in the, at a sort of one level... It's actually uh, been quite good news for the civil service. Uh, civil service recruitment has gone up. Uh, the long cuts that were initiated from around 2009 have been reversed. In some departments, they've now sort of actually levels are now higher than they were in 2010. DEFRA is back at about its 2010 levels. The Home Office is now bigger than it was in 2010. Um, so that has been reversed. There's huge numbers of promotion opportunities. After years of civil service pay caps, there is actually what's described as a Wild West in Whitehall. Uh, the result of actually not allowing pay progression is that you only get extra pay if you get yourself promoted. So this is like opening the floodgates. So churn, which is always a Whitehall problem, has been compounded by that. There was, as I said, an unwillingness to use EU knowledge. But the civil services had a really difficult task because even today, multiple scenarios are still in play. Planning Brexit is a massively difficult task. If you look at things, we have a chart where we look at difficult projects in government. The Olympics, actually a big coordination task. Uh, we knew in 2005 we'd won the Olympics. We had to deliver it in 2012. That was quite a big task. It was nothing like the scale of Brexit. Automatic enrolment for pensions, where we reach the final stage, I think, next week, when contributions go up to 8%. That was conceived back in 2003-05 by the Pensions Commission, given really long rollouts. That's one department, it's one set of employers. None of these things are anything like the scale of Brexit. And even now, people do not know whether they are planning for Brexit they were playing for Brexit, no deal Brexit potential on the 29th of March. 
They've now moved. Remember, Chris Grayling is going to have to fork out for those ferry contracts because he covered the 29th of March for a couple of weeks. Moving back to 12th of April throws quite a lot of that. No deal planning. Could be something odd on the 22nd of May if, we, if the EU gives us an extension to then and then we don't pass the withdrawal agreement bill. Even if we get into the transition, as Catherine says, we may decide that we don't want to conclude an agreement with the EU, so we have another no-deal cliff edge. And potentially we have people sitting around in agencies who are ready to go live, were ready to go live on Saturday, possibly they'd wait till Monday, but may not actually have a job to do until January 2023, or indeed ever. So that is quite a difficult management challenge if you look at it that way. Uh, we've also seen, because not only is this a massive implementation challenge, as Catherine said, it's also a massive legislation challenge. The uh, uh, secondary legislation has actually gone amazingly well, though I'm not sure how much of the secondary legislation bears too hard a look at quite the quality of whatever. It's certainly winning on the quantity stakes. Uh, a lot of MPs say it's been quite under-scrutinised. That's a bit rich, actually, because they never really scrutinised secondary legislation very much anyway. Um, but the trade bill, um, we have an agency that is supposed to go live, the Trade Remedies Authority, that's set up in the trade bill. The trade bill is, keeps on going missing in action because MPs keep on putting down very inconvenient amendments to it. Um, that's civil service numbers. There's also been some tensions between ministers and the civil service. We saw some very high-profile examples. The resignation of Ivan Rogers, who did know about the EU, uh, in January 2017, we have repeated attacks on the Prime Minister's chief negotiator, Ollie Robbins. Only last week, number 10 appeared to be offering up Ollie Robbins as a sacrificial lamb. Uh, he was asked in exiting the EU committee or an EU scrutiny committee. You know, Mr. Robbins, do you in your heart believe in Brexit? Uh, so there have been big suspicions about the civil service. And Charlie will come on to this, but one of the people that, of course, Brexit is most suspicious of are Charlie and his ilk, because they really don't like economists. And in fact, actually, the corruption of the Treasury into the pre-referendum campaign is one of the very big reasons for that. We've also seen an amazing disintegration of our um, disciplines within the Cabinet. The Prime Minister's always had to think about balancing factions within her government. That's not new. Blair Brown had to balance factions, Thatcher had to balance wets and dries, but the Prime Minister has had to balance leavers and remainers, and remainers who are now leavers and things like that. It has been hugely difficult to get decisions. The UK signed up to the fudge of the Irish backstop in December 2017 to get a judgment of sufficient progress. It then took the UK till July to put forward its proposition in the Chequers plan of what it wanted to do with that sufficient progress judgment. And the Prime Minister had to present it as a fait accompli. You couldn't knock it off or whatever. So the Prime Minister is unable to pivot. And in recent weeks, we have seen the complete and utter disintegration of cabinet responsibility. And finally, in Parliament... We have seen an amazing battleground. The government clearly took the view that it would do Brexit without Parliament. It's tried to circumvent and avoid Parliament at almost every turn. Uh, it's been reluctant to provide information, which is why those of us who have been civil servants for a long time suddenly discovered there was something called a humble address that we'd never heard of. It's had real problems getting its legislation through. It's very interesting that the resigning ministers have tended to be Brexiteers, 
The rebellious Conservatives have, by and large, except on the meaningful votes, tended to be former Remainers. So Dominic Grieve has become a, uh, a pin-up at the people's vote. Parliamentary conventions have been ripped off on all sides. We've had a government held in contempt. We've had the Speaker playing fast and loose with precedent. Um, and actually, the entire basis of our system of government has been called into question. The basis of our system is that a government that cannot get its legislation through does not command the confidence of the House. Yet in January, we saw the Prime Minister on consecutive days going down to the biggest defeat a Prime Minister had ever suffered, and yet the next day, the House daily voting that it had confidence in her to go on. So that is a real problem. It's not just those things, that forum of breakdown. The other thing is that party loyalty is breaking down. We no longer are particularly interested in parties as such. We are interested in WhatsApp groups within parties, uh, the factions within factions. Conservatives admit that the ERG, with its own whipping arrangements, is a party within a party. Tom Watson has formed his own social democratic forum for people who perhaps aren't totally riven with Jeremy Corbyn's approach there to stop them all becoming tickets. So... We're in a very fluid time. I think the really interesting question, this is my final comment, is, is this all because of Brexit? And will everything revert to normal when and if we're ever through Brexit? Or are we actually resetting quite a lot of those boundaries about how we work, how our constitution runs? And I haven't even touched evolution. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good. I think I'm to me. Um, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my brief is supposed to be to talk uh, about the economics, uh, which um, in some circumstances might be exciting, but I think at the current juncture, uh, the political aspects are probably uh, uh, have more brio with them. But nevertheless, um, I'm going to uh, start with a few words about what's happened since the referendum vote, uh, and then um, in the second half I'll look forward uh, to what the future might hold, depending on how uh, the uh, current deliberations turn out. Um, uh, Jill's already referenced the uh, uh, implication of the, the Treasury in the uh, referendum campaign, uh, George Osborne uh, famously claiming on the back of the Treasury's analysis of the short-run implications uh, of uh, a vote to leave, uh, forecasting an immediate recession, unemployment uh, rising by uh, half a million. Uh, it's pretty clear that hasn't happened. Um, but having said that, uh, the Treasury forecasts, although not exactly their finest hour, are not quite as disastrously wrong uh, as some people uh, claim. Uh, certainly, uh, they called the fall in the exchange rate about right. Sterling fell about 10%. Uh, but more particularly, growth does appear to have slowed uh, relative to where we might have expected it, it to have been uh, without the, the, the vote. Uh, the, Treasury Act, the, the Treasury projections um, actually had output 
3.5% below where it would otherwise have been at the moment of Brexit. Um, it actually looks like we're about two percentage points uh, below. And you can come at that from a, a variety of uh, ways. Uh, this chart here shows you the, the swathe of growth rates across G7 countries. Now, typically, if, I, if I'd extended this uh, back in time, you'd find the UK tends to be towards the top of this uh, swathe, and that's because the uh, labour force grows relatively quickly compared to some of the other comparative countries, not because we have particularly fast productivity growth or anything, far from it. Um, and you'll uh, see from this, the, the blue line, which is uh, the UK's growth, uh, moves from being in the, the upper part of this swathe uh, to being in the bottom uh, for uh, a good part of the uh, post-referendum period. Um, more um, uh, sort of serious statistical analysis, which re relies on constructing uh, so-called doppelganger economies, uh, looking at uh, the best ways of predicting UK growth from what's happening in other countries, using information up to the referendum and then constructing a sort of synthetic UK for the post-referendum period, uh, also points to growth being about two percentage points lower over the, the period since the referendum than would otherwise have been the case. And then finally, if we look at OBR forecasts, uh, and these are forecasts that were made before <coughs> I joined the OBR, so I don't feel I have any great ownership of them. Uh, the uh, OBR um, reduced its uh, forecast for growth over the, the next two years or so uh, by one and a half percentage points between the last forecast ahead of the referendum uh, and the November 2016 forecast, which was the uh, first post-referendum forecast. This chart here shows you cumulative forecast errors for real GDP and various components within that up to various uh, quarters. Um, so the, the black line here shows that initially growth was outperforming the uh, November 2016 forecast, but has now actually come virtually bang in line. It's actually the most accurate nine-quarter ahead forecast the, uh, the OBR has so far yet made, stunningly precise, in fact. However, the components, and this is the thing I want to draw attention to, have turned out differently. Uh, and uh, in particular, consumption has held up much better than uh, many economists, including that Treasury uh, forecast, uh, suggested. So added about a percentage point more to growth. That's the gray line at the end um, than was initially expected. There's also uh, a significant contribution from that red block. A chunk of that is stock building. Um, and some of this is going to be anticipatory stock building by businesses ahead of the um, possibility of a, a no-deal exit. Um, however, we've got some things on the other side pulling down in the other direction. In particular, business investment, which is the yellow bars. Initially, that 
actually was holding up better than expected, but over the past year uh, has uh, disappointed. And this chart here um, demonstrates quite clearly the comparative weakness uh, of business investment in the UK. In the other G7 countries, it's risen about 10% over this period. And you would have expected something similar in the UK, given its uh, position in the, the business cycle. Uh, unemployment is lower here uh, than in uh, the rest of the EU, for instance. You would certainly have expected, in a normal business cycle, business investment to be significantly stronger. So business investment looks as if it's about 10% below where one might have expected. And that obviously has implications for the productive capacity of the economy. And uh, the rationalization of this that most economists uh, would appeal to is it's simply businesses uh, putting projects on hold because of the uh, uncertainty about the, um, uh, the new trading arrangements. Uh, it's also worth saying that that lower pound um, has failed to boost exports as much as uh, one might have hoped. So net exports, which is the green bit here, uh, that's actually uh, detracted uh, from uh, growth to the tune of about a, a percentage point. It's been weaker than we uh, expected. And if you dig into that, it's particularly exports. It's nothing to do with imports. It's just exports have not been as strong as one might hope uh, and uh, would have been expected on the basis of past experience. And again, that may partly be connected with businesses not knowing what the future may hold uh, and instead taking the benefits of a lower pound just in higher profit margins rather than increasing the volume of exports. Uh, employment has been remarkably strong. Unemployment is now at the sort of levels that we saw uh, back in the uh, late 60s, uh, early 70s. Uh, but of course, if you've got a, uh, an outcome where growth has been, if anything, somewhat disappointing, but employment growth has been strong, then the way you fit that together is productivity growth has been abysmal. Now, the, the UK's poor productivity performance, uh, really since the financial crisis, it's about 20% below a continuation of its pre-crisis trend, is not down primarily to Brexit. Uh, there's lots of argument about what's driving it, um, and it was there before the referendum vote, but it is likely that the, the vote to leave may have exacerbated that. In particular, businesses are going to prefer to use employment-intensive forms of production rather than capital-intensive forms of production because it's easier to reverse uh, uh, any expansion in the labor force than it is to reverse uh, an expansion that's associated with more physical investment. So uh, oh, one other thing about the past is immigration, which, of course, played uh, a big uh, role in the, uh, the referendum vote. Um, inward migration from the EU, which are the uh, uh, bottom-colored bars in this chart, uh, has eased, it's roughly halved, from about 200,000 uh, a year down to close to 100,000 uh, a year, partly because the decline in the value of the pound has made it less attractive for European workers uh, to come here. 
Uh, but that's been offset by increased inward migration from other parts of the world. It's worth saying that from the point of view of the public finances, this is not a helpful development. Typically, workers uh, coming from uh, the rest of the EU are younger, single, and are uh, net contributors to the public finances. Whereas uh, there's more migration from the rest of the world, which actually involves people bringing their families older uh, and potentially uh, more net burden on the public finances. Not necessarily a large effect, uh, but it's something that um, is not particularly helpful uh, from the point of view of uh, the public finances. Moving on to uh, where we go uh, in the future, um, uh, Catherine's already talked about the uh, withdrawal uh, agreement. There's a financial settlement embedded within that, which is around £38 billion. The exact sum varies with where the exchange rate is and uh, some other uh, data pieces. But it's about that level, and that's equivalent to about uh, four years' worth of uh, annual net contributions. Um, now, possible end states, which again uh, Catherine's uh, talked about, uh, under the existing withdrawal agreement and uh, political declaration, that envisages a transition uh, to an eventual state of close economic partnership, sometimes called Canada Plus or Canada Plus Plus or Plus Plus Plus, <laughs> if you want to add lots of uh, pluses, but, uh, but basically a, um, uh, a close economic trading relationship with uh, the rest of the EU. And failing to agree that leads us going into the, uh, the backstop, which involves uh, a UK-wide customs union uh, together with some regulatory uh, alignment, which applies particularly for Northern Ireland to ensure uh, no hard border. Uh, now, um, if uh, when I said um, I was going to participate in this, we had all expected this would be the eve of us leaving, what I would be saying here is don't think it's all over yet, because uh, it ain't. Uh, this is like going to the ring cycle, and we've just about finished Rheingold, <laughs> and we've now got Valkyrie, Siegfried, and Goethe Demeron to come. Uh, the, the process of agreeing uh, that uh, uh, trading arrangement with the rest of the EU is going to be extremely complex. Um, the one thing that many people don't really appreciate is that uh, it's not really tariffs that are the key thing. Uh, people, uh, politicians often switch from talking about free trade to frictionless trade as though it's the same thing and tariffs are, uh, are the issue. They're not. Uh, tariffs are relatively small beer. The average uh, tariff that um, uh, the EU imposes on uh, countries that are trading with it under WTO rules, most favoured nation, is about 4%. Okay. What's far more important are non-tariff barriers. So these are things like uh, health and safety regulation, environmental regulation, abiding with that, uh, rules of origin, which dictate how much of uh, a product has to be made within the EU as opposed to being outside, 
uh, customs checks, um, administrative burdens, things like that. Uh, uh, having a, a level playing field for state procurement, so forth. Uh, now, whereas tariffs, it's quite easy to go away and look up how uh, important they are, and that's why we know the average trade-weighted uh, external tariff of the EU is around about 4%. For non-tariff barriers, uh, you have to infer them indirectly. Um, and economists do that essentially by uh, looking at to what extent there appear to be distortions in trade that can't otherwise be accounted for. And uh, people who've looked at this come up with numbers that suggest these non-tariff barriers are of the order of three to four times more important than the tariffs. So dealing with the non-tariff barriers or minimising them is pretty key in any negotiation and pretty key to what the economic uh, consequences are. Um, it's pretty inevitable during uh, the process of negotiating uh, a transition to a close economic partnership. The more we want easy access, the more we're going to have to uh, give up uh, in terms of uh, conceding that we'll be abide by EU rules. I think that's pretty clear, and Catherine made that point. Uh, of course, there are other options. Uh, uh, people uh, uh, are currently talking in, in Parliament about having a customs union or uh, adopting a Norway-style arrangement uh, where we're in the European economic area and the European free trade area, or possibly both of those together. I think it's worth saying you need both of those together to get rid of the Northern Ireland backstop problem. Uh, but you do that, uh, obviously, essentially, by uh, agreeing to be in something like the backstop uh, indefinitely. Uh, and the uh, Norway model... Uh, I've heard described as pay, obey, and no say. Uh, 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 countries pay something into the common EU budget. They're rule takers, um, but they don't have a vote. It's not strictly true that they don't have a say, because they have a voice. Uh, they usually get consulted uh, by uh, the uh, EU members, on uh, potential rule changes, but they don't uh, directly have a, uh, uh, a vote uh, on them. Uh, the European Economic Area uh, solution, the Norway solution, is one, though, that uh, essentially gets or makes sure that these non-tariff barriers uh, don't rise too much, really keeps the additional uh, barriers there to a minimum. Customs Union... Uh, unless you add other things on, um, you, you may get rid of uh, tariffs interfering be, uh, between trade between the uh, UK and the rest of the EU, uh, but you'll still be left with the non-tariff barriers. Uh, no deal obviously involves um, uh, immediate reversion to trading on WTO rules. Catherine's already talked about uh, the fact that WTO <coughs> rules uh, are not as attractive as uh, some people seem to think, and unilateral revocation. Um, have we learnt uh, a lot about, or anything, about the long-run economic consequences since the referendum? Uh, I think the analysis that uh, people have done uh, uh, 
before and since really doesn't tell us uh, anything new that we hadn't, uh, hadn't been aware of. Uh, but what has certainly been true uh, is that Brexiteers have realised that it's uh, harder to secure free trade arrangements with other countries uh, than they had envisaged. Liam Fox said he'd have 40 ready to sign uh, on the, uh, the eve of Brexit. I think we're up to about uh, a dozen uh, with uh, the likes of the Faroe Islands and so forth, hardly the big players. Uh, in terms of the consequences of these various trading arrangements, there's, there's plenty of uh, studies out by different academics or official bodies uh, and so forth. This just gives you a flavor uh, of them. You might uh, struggle to read some of the numbers uh, if you're uh, at the back. Uh, but basically, for the European Economic Association, uh, uh, the um, uh, European Economic Area, uh, you're talking about something like a 1% hit to GDP. Uh, a free trade area, Canada-style free trade area, 2 or 3% uh, percent, uh, of GDP. World Trade Organization rules, we're in the 3, 4 5%. There's some bigger numbers down the bottom, and that's because those studies uh, assume very big dynamic effects over and above the classic static gains from trade. Uh, the consequence of putting in barriers to trade is you end up generating a less efficient specialization in the global economy. Um, and that's what... Uh, most of the studies are primarily picking up. But on top of that, there are some people who think there may be important dynamic consequences, particularly associated uh, with foreign direct investment being a channel for uh, knowledge transfer uh, and innovation. Uh, and the ones down the bottom imply uh, pretty big effects from that, in my view, implausibly <coughs> uh, large effects. Uh, and it should be said the evidence base for that is relatively weak. Uh, but a lot of the other studies uh, are in the same ballpark. They come up with different numbers, partly because they have slightly different models, but more particular because they put in slightly different assumptions about the uh, uh, size of non-tariff barriers uh, in particular. Uh, so that's uh, uh, ballpark estimates uh, of, of the possible impact. Uh, the Bank of England put out uh, a piece prepared for the Treasury Committee shortly before uh, Christmas um, with various scenarios. Um, the, the ones at the top um, uh, look at basically a couple of variants of the economic partnership that the deal was supposed to be associated with. Uh, so a, a close one uh, which involves... Uh, a, a loss of about uh, a percentage point relative to the uh, um, pre-referendum trend. Um, that's sort of the best you might hope for. If it ends up with a, a less close relationship, um, uh, it's a 3% loss, I guess. Uh, but also the uh, bank um, included simulations of no deal um, uh, outcomes where there was uh, a disorderly 
transition, or, sorry, no transition, a disorderly move uh, to um, uh, WTO rules. And they, they looked at two scenarios. One they call disruptive, <coughs> uh, which um, uh, involves no free trade arrangements or anything like that, and a certain amount of disruption of borders <coughs> and so forth. And then layered on top of that in their so-called disorderly one uh, is one where there's, you can think of as sort of a loss of confidence in UK uh, uh, policy-making machinery, a big rise in risk premium on assets, uh, and so <coughs> forth. Now, that's, um, I think, a pretty uh, tail event. Um, but uh, you might get something uh, from the uh, disruptive scenario. It's worth saying that one of the reasons why uh, both of those are well below uh, the scenarios uh, for uh, a, a, an economic partnership um, is because there's also quite a big hit onto inward migration. So migration uh, falls back very sharply, and that has uh, significant effects on GDP. Now, I don't want uh, you to take these numbers uh, particularly seriously. There's a, this is an area where there's a a real dangerous, spurious precision. Uh, but it's useful for getting an idea of the sorts of um, uh, effects that one might be talking about. Um, question is, can these be compensated for in other ways? In particular, um, uh, those who are in favour of uh, uh, moving to um, uh, a relatively clean Brexit uh, would place great store by the fact that we can uh, then draw up uh, free trade arrangements uh, with other countries and particularly with those in the fast-growing uh, parts of the world. Um, I have to say I think this is a, a significant challenge uh, to make them enough to make up for the potential loss in a close relationship with the EU. At the moment, uh, half our trade is with the European Union. If you take account of countries that we have a free trade agreement with already by virtue of being a member of the EU, that takes it up to two-thirds uh, of trade. Um, and um, you can't change the geography. The UK is close to the EU, and countries trade more with countries that are close to them, and they trade more with countries that are large. This is a so-called gravity model of trade. And it's a pretty good description of trade patterns. So even given the fact that uh, Asia may well be where a lot of the growth in the coming century is concentrated, it is still inevitable that we are going to trade pretty heavily uh, with our neighbours. And if the trading arrangements with the EU are ones which end up introducing significant trading barriers, uh, these non-tariff barriers that I talked about, it's going to be very challenging to be able to generate trading agreements with countries like China, which have a big enough effect to offset that. So uh, I think one has to be realistic about what can be uh, achieved here. Okay. Um, uh, another uh, 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 benefit that people have claimed for uh, Brexit is it will allow us to deregulate. Again, this is quite challenging uh, because the UK is already, already relatively likely 
regulated. The left-hand diagram here is measures of protection uh, of permanent workers against dismissal in various countries. You can see the UK is already relatively low there. On the right is a measure of product market regulation. Again, uh, we're very lightly regulated compared to other countries. Um, and if you ask businesses what are the regulations that they find uh, most irksome, uh, they're typically environmental uh, regulations, things to do with climate change and so forth, uh, and things to do with workers' rights. And there is a question about whether there would be the political support uh, for making those uh, much lighter. So, again, one has to be a little bit sceptical. Uh, final thought, since I'm being uh, told uh, uh, to finish. Um, I think the, the long-run effects of an orderly Brexit, whatever it is, given the numbers that I've talked about, one, two, three, four percent of GDP, they're actually pretty small uh, when you set that against the fact that over uh, 20, 25 years, the economy can be expected uh, to grow by uh, a third or more. Uh, the effects of uh, leaving the EU are only going to become manifest relatively slowly. Um, and also the sorts of numbers that we've talked about are small compared to the productivity slowdown. In that sense, that's one of the really unfortunate things about the last few years, that we've been obsessed with something which from an economic perspective is very small beer compared to the really important uh, economic challenges uh, that determine workers' living standards. Finally, on no deal, if that's where we uh, end up, uh, it, we know that some of the worst possible effects of no deal, like planes not flying, financial contracts not being honoured, have been uh, um, taken off the table, and larger firms have been making uh, precautionary measures, building up stocks and so forth. But it looks like plenty of small and medium-sized enterprises uh, are not particularly well prepared. And the key thing that I would want to emphasize here is that it's the unknown unknowns that matter here. It's the interconnections between firms, uh, what might be happening down their supply chains and so forth. You can prepare, but you don't know whether the people that you're trading with uh, have taken adequate um, preparations. So uh, not only would I have concerns about whether the public sector is adequately prepared, I think there is an open question about whether it is even possible for the private sector to be fully prepared for this, since just like in the financial crisis, uh, we couldn't see until they were honours the interconnections between institutions. Uh, here we may find exactly the same sort of thing, that there are unforeseen consequences and linkages which lead to, uh, to more disruption. You'd also have uncertainty to continue weighing on investment, I think, in the way it clearly has done over the last two years. And the final thing I would say is you do have those in, some of those in favour of a, a hard Brexit, a no-deal Brexit, saying that we should also uh, withhold the financial settlement. Uh, I think if we were to do that, that would be regarded as an act of extremely bad faith uh, by the other side. They would see that as akin to defaulting uh, on our obligations, akin to defaulting on a uh, public debt, if you like. Uh, and it's very difficult to see under those circumstances uh, how you can then uh, come to uh, a, a, a 
amicable and mutually beneficial trading arrangement. So I will stop there. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to the three speakers. We have uh, just a little time for uh, questions and uh, contributions from the audience. Uh, can you uh, please put up your hand? Can we take the lady here at the, the, big, at the front, please? Can you wait for the microphone? Please, in the interest of time, if you could just um, say uh, who you are and come to the question. I'm a, I'm a scientist. Um, uh, I've been here since '96. Uh, but I'm originally from Spain, and I guess my question is, why was the EU never featured in the news or on the discussions um, before the whole Brexit referendum in the way that it was in Europe, where we get news from what the U uh, European Union are, are doing, what they're discussing um, daily? Um, okay. And only it was only used to demonize um, in the interest of different political okay. parties. Many thanks. So I guess my question is, um, why are all these arguments, these realistic arguments, and I'm, I'm particularly asking first speaker, not being put clear to the general public rather than okay. the academics? Thanks. Sorry, we're our short of time, but we get the very good question. Can we take the gentleman with the grey... My question is, um, basically, on the 12th of April, if there's going to be no deal, Swenar Brexit, what do, you didn't highlight only one point. What is going to happen about the justice system? So, basically, if someone uh, from uh, Spain or Italy or, or Germany wants to sue someone in um, in UK, is going to change something or is still in, in the transition period, so is, is going to be uh, business as usual? Okay, thanks. Other questions? Uh, yes, the gentleman in the middle. The uh, my question is, uh, in the event of... Um, so there's been a lot of talk about revoking and reconsidering. Revoke Article 50, reconsider how to, how to do Brexit. Is this possibility blocked by the Court of Justice's condition that revocation be unequivocal um, as, uh, as described in the Whiteman judgment. Okay, many thanks. And then the gentleman in the blue shirt. Um, what would your top three pieces of advice be to the new Prime Minister when they come into the Brexit? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a nice question to uh, finish that round on. Okay. Uh, I'm going to invite the panel to respond to the particular questions that they would uh, wish to uh, select rather than attempting to answer each uh, question. Uh, Catherine, there were a couple of questions about law, revoke, uh, the gentleman is planning to sue someone. Yeah, bring it on, absolutely. Yes, you can carry on suing. Um, the, um, and the British court, the English court, the courts of England and Wales are still open for business. Um, and indeed, um, they have grandfathered, I 
brought over the um, Rome 1 regulation and um, the Brussels uh, one. The bigger problem is going the other way of trying to get your ju judgments enforced abroad, and that's um, causing some issues. In respect of your, the lady's question at the front about um, why um, arguments have, uh, that we've been making have not been clear to the public, because there's been a total failure in civic education for decades. And up until the referendum, there was zero interest in the BBC or ITV in doing anything about the EU apart from bendy bananas. And so it's been something about of a dialogue of the deaf. Um, and uh, the very fact is that um, schools have provided almost no coverage um, of anything to do about the EU. When they're teaching democracy at school, they're talking about Westminster democracy. And Westminster's held up as the the bastion, the guardian of democracy, and actually it shows just, Brexit's shown just how far the mighty have fallen. Um, on the question about revoking Article 50 and blocked by the EU conditions, uh, ECJ's conditions, um, yes, you have a point. The thing is, what we don't know is how robust those conditions will be. We know that there'll have to be some sort of democratic moment. I think at a minimum it's got to be an act of parliament, probably not a second referendum, probably not a general election. But the question which can't be answered is how long have we got to um, stay good or stay pure for and, and, and stay in this revocation mode? Or is there a period of time after which we can then trigger Article 50? And I think the answer to that must be yes, because the whole point about parliamentary sovereignty is one parliament can't bind its successor. And so actually you may find that these conditions are less um, robust than would first appear. I'll stop there. Thank you. Jill. Uh, I'm just going to take, uh, take two questions. The lady from Spain, uh, welcome. Um, I think Catherine's right that uh, we have very poor reporting of the EU because actually we're very obsessed with US politics, so that's the sort of for that equates to foreign coverage in our papers. Um, our papers, I, when I lived in Spain, I was incredibly surprised by uh, El País. Uh, I remember reading it in my hotel. My Spanish wasn't very good. And turning the front sort of section is all foreign coverage, you know, before you get to the domestic coverage. I remember sitting in my hotel in Spain, and the second page was a big interview with a guy called Chris Woodhead, who was the UK chief inspector of schools, who got a full-page interview in El País. <laughs> Whereas we sort of sent Boris Johnson off to find comedy stories from the EU, and that was our coverage of the EU. There's been a thing, though, uh, Catherine said some things. No British minister has ever been able to go to Europe and say, I, took, you know, I did this in the interests of European progress. We have always had a transactional relationship with Europe ever since we joined, but we've also had a confrontational relationship. Um, I was, for my sins, briefly Gordon Brown's press secretary. Tony Blair was making loads of speeches about being at the heart of Europe. Uh, Gordon Brown framed his first trip to the, Europe, uh, to the Finance Council as a battle to allow, be allowed to reduce the rate of VAT on domestic fuel and power from 7.5% the Conservative set out to 5% which is minimum EU rate uh, if you have moved away from a zero rate. Um, one of my friends who was economic editor of News at the time said to him, 
Chancellor, you say you've won this great battle, but I can't find anyone on the other side who was fighting you, because actually this was entirely in the UK's discretion to do. But that is not a good narrative. That does not sell in the UK. So we have always been in this battling against Europe narrative. So to the question about advice to a new Prime Minister, read everything the Institute for Government has written on this. It's top and particularly our upcoming uh, uh, report on how to run the second stage of the negotiations. It's not quite out yet. We're waiting for the dust to settle enough that it's worth putting out. Um, but what I would say is actually, you know, think about, set yourself a realistic set of negotiating objectives. Actually try them on people mm. who know about the EU before you blast in and set red lines that are going to be undeliverable. And bring your cabinet in with you. Have mechanisms where you can make trade-offs because you're going to be making loads and loads of difficult trade-offs and have an honest conversation with the public about what is realistic to deliver and what isn't. And I think Theresa May has failed on every count of those. Charles, if you were asked to give three points of advice to the next Prime Minister, and the next Prime Minister is coming along shortly, uh, what would that advice be? Well, I think the first might be don't. Um, don't uh, become Prime Minister? Don't become Prime Minister. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's very unwise to accept jobs that you think you're going to struggle to do, and uh, <laughs> frankly, even somebody who is a political genius uh, would have struggled that said, uh, I have to agree with, uh, with Jill that I don't think the way that uh, we've played the last couple of years has been terribly smart. Uh, given that the country was divided, both parties divided, uh, I think it needed an, a, a, a willingness to reach across uh, party divides uh, to try and develop uh, a strategy together with Parliament rather than uh, just through the, uh, the Cabinet, uh, and uh, certainly thinking about that before you trigger Article 50 and so on, and have a, a clear strategy, clear idea of what you want to achieve, um, uh, and make sure that it is something that is achievable. Good. Um, unless I'm going to get a signal to say not to do this, I'm going to uh, invite a couple of more questions and we'll perhaps uh, respond to those. Could we take the gentleman here, please? Thank you. Um, should the UK, you know, do even more referendums in order to become better at it, or, be, or do even less referendums, or even no referendums, even to before, to prevent this kind of, you okay. know, things happen again? Many thanks. Uh, uh, is the lady in blue... Does this mean that no country will ever attempt to leave the EU again? Okay. And then there's a lady in, uh, in the centre. Could you wait for the microphone, please? Is the problem more that not that the politicians don't know what to do or don't know what they want to do? It's the fact that if they do what they want to do, the problem will be, be being re-elected. And that's what's causing the schism. Okay. Nice, simple questions to finish on. The gentleman here has got a question. Let's uh, take him. Hi, I have a question. That what if the UK want to rejoin the EU in the future, and that's it, and is there any problem with it or not? Thank you. Okay. 
Catherine, it's been so much fun, but if we uh, wanted to rejoin the European Union, is that so simple? Yes, we can do it. There's procedure laid down in the treaty. Uh, the problem is that we will lose the rebates we get um, on our f um, the fee that we pay, and we will lose our opt-outs from the Eurozone and from Schengen. Now, on the Eurozone, obviously, um, Charles can talk much more fluently about that than I, but um, the fact is you've got to hit the Maastricht criteria in order to be able to participate in the Eurozone, and it may be that we don't do that, but yes, absolutely, we can rejoin, but we will rejoin as a supplicant state, and many people say that one of the reasons um, why we are now in the position that we're now in is because back in 72-73, we're in such a weak state e economically that we joined the EU largely as a supplicant state, and, therefore, and the French very much had the upper hand, which is why they negotiated very successfully over fish and over agriculture. Um, and, 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 of course, we joined something which was already pre-existing, which hadn't been shaped in our image. Okay. Um, in, in answer to the question, should the UK have fewer referendums, I would say we are totally inexperienced in referenda. Uh, unlike um, Ireland, when they, have, they take referenda very seriously, there is some sort of government commission beforehand, all of the options are on the table, it's properly discussed and properly articulated. You don't just have a referendum in the way that we decided to do it in the UK on a matter as, as important as this one. Um, uh, will a country ever attempt to leave the EU again? All the polling um, suggests the answer at the moment is categorically no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, I think Catherine's right on our frivolous attitude to referenda. We regard referenda as uh, uh, ad hoc solutions to political problems. And if we're going to do referenda, we should do them more seriously and think, uh, think more about them. I want to just talk about the question about leaving the EU. I actually think, I mean, the UK has made a mess of the Article 50 process, but actually I think it's, it's not a good club that no one can leave. Actually, I think countries should have the right to leave. You know, it should be a club people want to stay in rather than one that the process of leaving is so dire people have kept in there against their will. Uh, and I think the EU should actually look at the Article 50 process. I put this point to um, Bonnier's spokesperson, Stefan de Rink, when he's been in London. Um, one of the things that Sir Ivan Rogers, the UK's former permanent representative, says is actually the EU's played a brilliant tactical game against the EU and a slightly short-sighted strategic game because the whole thing about the Article 50 is to actually get a good short-run deal, maintain EU unity, that was the absolute priority. But actually it's left it into a position where the UK, whatever the EU thinks of it, is its big next-door neighbour. We are a critical security partner. We are a critical economic partner. And actually ending up in a thing where it's going to be years and years of mutual recrimination is good for neither the UK nor the EU. And I'm not sure actually a better designed exit mechanism uh, needed to have delivered that. Charles. Yeah, um do politicians uh, know what they need to do, but they're just afraid to do it, which br brings to mind, I think it was Juncker, who was mm. uh, 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 one of the many international meetings that uh, bureaucrats have to uh, attend, said uh, after the financial crisis that we know what to do, uh, but we just don't know how to get re-elected re afterwards. Um, 
I'm not sure that's necessarily true of all uh, politicians, and, and people genuinely have different views about where they think the, the UK should be headed. There's clearly some who uh, see it as a, uh, a self-destructive act uh, and would rather we weren't where we are, uh, but there is this extra tension of having had a referendum uh, which people... Uh, which the politicians said they would uh, honour, um, it's very difficult not to, uh, to go through with that in some way. Um, so I, th I think it's, um, uh, it's, it's harder to navigate because this was driven by that referendum result in the first place. Uh, I'm certainly very against referenda uh, in general, um, and particularly ones which require... Um, uh, most sort of degree of specialist knowledge.